This is Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. This is a place where you'll discover what's possible when people impacted by reactive attachment disorder inspire change and build community through sharing their stories and expertise. I'm Tracy Poffenroth Prado, and I'm your host. I'm really glad you're here. And before we get started, if you like the podcast, please click like, share, and write a review. It helps so much. Let's get started. I cannot wait to dive in with my guest today, Jen T. Grace. Jen is a nationally recognized business strategist, speaker, and award-winning author. She's committed to giving underrepresented voices power and a stage to share their stories, speak their truth, and impact their communities. Jen is the founder of Publish Your Purpose, a publishing company that includes programs that teach aspiring authors how to write and publish their books. In addition to publishing over 70 books that share the stories of others, Jen has written six, including her memoir, House on Fire. House on Fire is a raw and riveting memoir about her journey growing up as an adopted child in a chaotic household and later the adoption of her emotionally troubled niece with reactive attachment disorder. Jen passionately believes the more raw and real we can be, the deeper connections we can experience. And this drives her fierce commitment to bring voice to the invisible stories that free people from their isolation. We have a lot in common. Jen has been featured in Forbes, the Huffington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, too many to list. Jen, we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) So I'm just going to jump in. Welcome to Rad Talk with Tracy. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes because I have no idea and I love it. <laughs> Those are the best conversations. They, they are. really are. And we were introduced by a mutual friend and author. And so uh, I really appreciate that connection. And we were talking earlier about there's so many of us out there that have experienced or raised kids with reactive attachment disorder and are now being that voice for other people out there. But I, you know, we don't always get to connect or know about each other. So this was a really nice, a nice connection. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it's, as we know, right. Rad is not something well known about. It's not talked about. People are kind of living in isolation. And so when you do connect with somebody who at least gets it, I feel like that to me, it's just having someone who gets it. You don't have to understand all of it, but just like get the lived experience of living with a child with rad. Right. is such a common, common denominator. It really is. Yeah. That lived experience. Cause you get it on a different level that nobody else and rad like many things, but rad is something I don't think you can truly understand. Like you say, until you've, you've mm-hmm. walked in those shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you wear many hats. You started a publishing company. You've written a book. You've lived your own life raising a child with reactive attachment disorder. You're adopted. We Mm -hmm. talked about that. I was adopted. Um, Where do you feel like you want to jump in? You want to talk about your story? (laughs) That's a great (laughs) question. I feel like a little context and then you can take it wherever you want to go. But it's not only that I raised a child with rad, but I grew up with a sibling with rad. Right. And so it almost feels like I repeated the trauma of my childhood. I basically was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to repeat this all over again in adulthood, um, obviously from an unconscious level, but it it's just one of those things that I feel like, and, you know, being adopted, 
having adopted, having given a child up for adoption, I feel like there's so many different layers between, and and it's like, obviously our stories are all our own stories. We're not in the, you know, the pain Olympics of who's, you know, who's rad kid is worse. But at the same time, I feel like I I have like a, just a very different vantage point from growing up with a sibling and then having a child and then all three levels of like what adoption could look like. It just creates like a very, I don't know, very uh, nuanced perspective of things. Yeah. And your, was your adoption typical? I think we were very similar, weren't we? We were both very young uh, and it was a positive experience for you. Yeah. I was three months. So, you know, and, and it was kind of like right out of the gate. Like I knew I, and it was only three months because I had pneumonia when I was born. And so I was in the hospital longer than I should have been. But, you know, beyond that, you know, it was a very, very kind of typical, easy from that perspective. But my sister, on the other hand, also adopted and not, but, you know, she and I are not biologically related, but, you know, she was failure to thrive, adopted when she was almost three. And so had already come with so much neglect and baggage that, you know, it's kind of hard as we all know, like the developing brain, those first couple of years are so imperative to have stability. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. crucial. Wow. So different experiences a hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so growing up with your sister, did you know, did your family know that she had reactive attachment disorder and what was that like? I write a lot about this in my book and I try to be as diplomatic as I can to just kind of share my experience without being, you know, making her bad or wrong or demeaning in any way. But it was hard. It was hard because I was seven when she was adopted. And, you know, I, you know, I went seven years being the only child. And then all of a sudden it wasn't like a a talked about thing. It was just all of a sudden my parents were like, Hey, we're, we're getting another kid. And like, gave me zero, zero um, information about it, which I feel like, you know, sometimes parents do. I was seven, you know, what, yeah. what, what really, but uh, it was like right out of the gate. Like it was the second she came to live with us that it was nonstop chaos. Hmm. And she was almost three at the time, but I am pretty sure. And I don't know this for, for certain because both of my parents have both passed. So I can't, I don't have anyone to ask, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure her diagnosis didn't come until she was like 13 or 14. Yeah. Yeah. So to go with a child that is so out of control and violent in a lot of ways and manipulative in all of the ways, and to not actually have a, a thing that you could label your child mm-hmm. as, I'm sure that had to be so difficult for both of them. And my mom was a nurse. So, you know, I somehow previously, I thought that, okay, she's a nurse. She should have had a better candle on this, but that was unfair of me to kind of put on her mm-hmm. at the same time, which I didn't recognize until after she passed. Right. Um, but yeah, like, I think it was, it had to have been very hard for their marriage. They ended up getting divorced. So it is know, hard. It, and you know, that still happens today, Jen, mm-hmm. that families get these kiddos and don't aren't told, uh, for whatever reasons, it's not a blame game. Like you say, it's just how it is. Right. And, uh, so people don't know when you grow up just like you did with your family, so chaotic and no answers. Right. And sometimes that label is important, uh, because then at least you can look for the solutions that match that label to help and try and make things better. Yeah. yeah, And having so validation, hard. right. Like just being validated that like there, this is an actual thing. This isn't just yeah. me hallucinating or me making things up. Like there's an actual diagnosis related to these behaviors. I feel yeah. like that is so powerful. It really is. Especially because with reactive attachment disorder, often people think it's a bad 
parent, Mm -hmm. right? You're just not parenting the right way. Uh, So that's huge. Your book is about your life with your sister. Yes. And it's really the easiest way I can describe it because it is so complex. Like there are Mm -hmm. so many, like the rad piece is just one of many other situations from my life, (laughs) but it's really kind of like adoption. So if, if, if I had to kind of break it out, it's kind of like the first part is being adopted. The second part is adopting. The third part is giving up for adoption. And so it doesn't evenly break out exactly like that, but that's kind of like the central through line from start right. to finish is really kind of adoption. And are you and your sister, uh, do you have a relationship today? No, we barely had one growing up mm-hmm. and I ended up adopting two of her children when I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And that was a very, I would imagine from her standpoint, very painful experience because she and I never had a good relationship. And then for her to have the court intervene and say, hey, you, you know, you can't have custody of your children. And the only option is your sister that you hate. Mm. I feel like that had to be, uh, I had to be rough. And that was back uh, 11 years ago. And so we still do not speak. You know, the last time I saw her was at my mom's funeral, which was over four years ago. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's a lot younger than you or five years, five years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Mm -hmm. did you, were you in the home the same time, most of the time, or did you, you know, was she there alone with your parents for some time after you moved out? Uh, that's a good question. I moved out. Like I try, I got out of there as fast as I could. So, you know, right, right before I turned 19, I was like, I am out. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I was very kind of intentional about making sure I had a plan to like get out and be able to stay out rather than having like having to return back home. But she, the name of my book is called house on fire. And it is both a literal house on fire, but it's also much more like a metaphorical house on fire because she burned our house down when she was 14. No, she must've been like 13, 12 or 13. Um, I was about 18. And so she like, and I mean, like burned it down. Like there's nothing, like there's very few things that, uh, that made it from the fire, but my parents had gotten divorced and my dad died when I was 15 he would have been, she would have been 10. And so like, there was really no opportunity other than when I left at 18 for her and my mom to kind of coexist together. And that was always a very, very, very rough situation. Like cops were called frequently. My mom had black eyes frequently. She, you know, wrecked my, my mother's vehicles on a number of occasions. So there's a lot of kind of domestic violence situations that were kind of occurring at the same time too, which I don't even write about in the book because it's not like, that's, that's not my story to tell, right? That would have been my yeah. mom's to tell or hers to tell. Right. So, but yeah. How did that feel for you being in that situation, watching a parent get hurt, fearing for your own comfort and safety and not getting along with your sister, obviously just all that chaos as from your perspective as a sibling and a mm-hmm. child growing up in that with a sibling who has reactive attachment disorder to that degree, what did that feel like for you? I was so disassociated, like really, like that is one of the biggest through lines. I think of my book too, is disassociation Mm. where I just, and I didn't, I didn't even know that this was what I was doing until I, until I started therapy in like 2017. So like, I mean, like we're talking like decades after the fact, I was like, oh my God, that makes sense. Mm. And like, I've always said like, oh, I have such a bad memory and it's, I don't have a bad memory. I just am disassociated if there's something that's emotionally tied to something. But when it comes to data, number, statistics, your phone number, your email address. I remember that, that stuff forever. So 
it's it's kind of interesting because it was just so um it was a lot it was very intense and yeah. so i think that my go to strategy was running like whether it was physically running or like you know fleeing like the fight or flight fight yeah. fight or freeze like i was absolutely in flight mode my entire life until i was about 35 wow wow just crazy Oh, and did you have a relationship with your mom after leaving or what was that like? Uh, we had some rocky ups and downs. Uh, one big piece of that was my coming out as, as a lesbian. And that definitely in my early twenties caused a, a ruckus, if you will, but I was still kind of the golden child, right? I was still the good one because I wasn't causing all this chaos and, you know, being abusive and burning things and, and stuff like that. But once I adopted my sister's daughter, my mom, instead of helping me process and deal with it, she disassociated and checked out from it. And so, which mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting again, more so in hindsight, I remember having a conversation with her one day and it had been years that my ex-wife and I were trying to find the right mental health support because we knew something was wrong, but we couldn't figure out what it was and yeah. no doctor would take us seriously. And we did the psych eval and we did another psych eval and nobody would listen to what we were saying. It was like you said before, like, you know, it's like, obviously you're, you're just not good parents. Right. And then we had the added stigma of being a lesbian couple that certainly did not help us at all. And so, you know, it was one of those things that it just kind of it got harder and harder to find the resources as so many rad families have experience in. And then all of a sudden, one day, my mom, I think my, our daughter was like seven, maybe she's like, Oh, reactive attachment. Your sister had that. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> what? Like I have been struggling for six years and you're just yeah. going to casually throw that out in a conversation mm. where we could have been leading with that label to say, Hey, her birth mother also had this, maybe there's a correlation, maybe there isn't, but having that word and language in a doctor's visit would have been absolutely critical. And I think would have gotten us the help faster. Really? Yeah. 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 Do you think your mom disassociated because it was like repeating history and just too hard to face that all over again? Probably, probably. Mm -hmm. And my mom uh, had a very, very severe drinking problem in my childhood, which now as an adult, I can see why she would have been drinking in excess because she just didn't know how to process and couldn't. And I would imagine there was probably a degree of like, Hey, I'm a nurse. Like, this is what I do for a living. I help people. I fix people and I can't fix my kid. I'm sure there was like an element to that too. Again, yeah. all of this comes in hindsight because at the time I was so mad and so angry at her for not being honest with me, but I don't mm -hmm. know that it was, she was intentionally not being honest. I think it was just more so like, like you said, she just couldn't process it or cope. It's interesting when you can look back on your childhood and see it from that vantage point mm -hmm. and see, oh, this is why my mom was so angry or did or didn't do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'd be nice to have that information during, but you, you can't. Yeah. And that's kind of the beautiful thing about writing a book and sharing your story. And I don't necessarily think it has to be in the form of a book. It could just be having a conversation like this, mm -hmm. but to just give you those opportunity points to actually reflect and yeah. really put yourself in the other person's situation. And like, even the dedication of my book is to both of my parents. And it says very clearly, I know that you were doing the best that you could in the circumstances that you were given. Like, I think that's yeah. all. That's it right there. Right. But it takes us so long to see that sometimes. It really does. Back to the house on fire. Were you guys home? Yeah, I wasn't. So my mom and sister were home. 
This happened in 99. So this is before, you know, like the popularity of cell phones and such. Okay. And I was in a couple of towns over with a friend of mine, but another friend of ours, a mutual friend just happened to be listening to the police scanner. Hmm. So like, this is, you know, how the technology at the time was the police scanner. <laughs> I remember <And> doing that. <laughs> she sent a page that was like an SOS page uh, to me. And so I called her from the payphone that was at the drugstore that I was at. And she's like, your house is on fire. Like you need what? to get home. You need to get back now. Your house is on fire. Oh. And it was a four alarm fire. Oh. So um, the added element, and I think the destruction would have been mitigated a little bit more, but it was in the middle of nowhere. And so there mm. weren't fire hydrants. So we didn't mm-hmm. have fire hydrants on our road. So they had to like truck in like the pool of water mm-hmm. and then like come down our street. And so the amount of time that that takes, like the damage, it ravages real quick. So, um, so my mom and sister were home, but I didn't, I had no details. I just knew that the house was on fire. I had no idea how it started, who was there. Um, so I immediately was panicking about them and my animals. And, you know, I, my friend drove us down the highway at like 110 miles an hour. Um, So we got there relatively quick because she was a very aggressive driver to begin with. So that was a benefit. (laughs) But uh, by the time I got there, you know, like the whole left side of the house was just completely um, gone. And that was like, my bedroom was on the floor, like the second floor of that side of the house. So I knew everything was gone. Um, and so like, it took a while and they didn't want to let me down the street. And I was like, I, I live, this is my house. Like, so I had to like fight with like fire people to like actually get down the street. And then finally I heard my neighbor uh, yelling my name. So I was able to like identify him because it was dark. I should have pointed that out. It was in December. It was like, kind of like snowy, but not really. And it was like eight or eight or nine o'clock at night. So it was like dark and couldn't really see and everything smoky. It was like a scene out of a movie to be perfect. I was going to say, it sounds exactly like a scene out of the movie, including arguing, trying to get past the tape, Mm -hmm. you know, to Mm -hmm. go and see. And I can't imagine hearing that news and just pulling up and seeing your house in that state. Yeah, it was really intense. And then I finally found my mom and sister Mm -hmm. who were at a different neighbor's house and they were both safe and the story ended up coming out after the fact that she lit, um, she was playing with a candle that lit one of the recliners on fire, which oh, then wow. lit the second one, which lit the bookcase behind it. And then the whole house went up. Just um, poof, yeah. So my mom kind of created this cover up story about it to make it look like an accident, even though the reality is because she didn't, I don't, you know, you're, you're protecting your kid at the end of the day. So I get it. Like at the yeah. time I was so bitter and angry about that too, where I was like, she literally just burned the house down. And you're and ruined everything. Her. And you're, yeah. yeah. And you're not like, but as a parent now, like, I get that. Like, mm-hmm. I do. So, yeah, it was really, um, it was so a lot. So, she did do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and obviously, there's nothing you can do about that. And we had good insurance, thankfully. So, things were able to be replaced. But, you know, it felt so like just the, it just felt so intentional because it was so interesting. And again, I was 18. So clearly mm-hmm. I was a, a much different person than I am now at, mm-hmm. uh, in my forties. But, you know, at the time there was like, my room was the worst damage of all because it was the, it was above the living room where it started. And then there was like two closets in the hallway. One was like burnt to the studs and the other one was like smoke. Da- you couldn't salvage anything anyway, cause of smoke damage, but the stuff, the closet that my stuff was in was the one that was burnt to the stud, the studs. Same thing happened in a different section of the house where there's two closets. One was burnt, one wasn't. And it was my stuff in that one too. And I'm like, it really, it just felt like insult to injury. And obviously it wasn't, it's not like she was like, Oh, let me put gas in these. Like it just happened to be how the fire unraveled, but it felt so intentional that it was like, this was like, I was intended to lose literally everything. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. um, but 
the bright side of it is that I'm not materialistic. Uh, even, even to this day, like I will give anyone anything. And I, I have given yeah. away so many things of mine that I'm like, wait a minute, didn't I have one of those? And I was like, who knows where I gave it to? doesn't right. matter. Right. Um, so You're not I attached do think, to the stuff. I'm not, I'm not. And yeah. like, you know, memories and experiences are far more valuable than any material possession. So it has given me a very, very different sense of, of kind of operating in the world from a non-materialistic standpoint. So I have taken that as kind of a a silver lining. A positive for sure. And yeah. yeah, like you say, it's not like she planned to burn only your closets. It yeah. just happened that way. Mm-hmm. But I can see pulling up and seeing that it's your area that would just put it over the top. You know, I could see how you would just take that so deeply. Yeah. I weeped. I like, it was like losing, you know, like a, a pet or a person or like, it was yeah. it's like the loss of anything else. And it was really intense. And I had a job at the time that was about maybe it was a year later, year and a half later. Mm-hmm. And I was working with, um, with this woman who was coming up on the 25 year anniversary of her house, having had a fire oh, interesting. and we were just kind of talking about it. And she's like, it's something that you'll never shake. Like it will always be with you. And I was yeah. like, that seems odd. Cause it was like only like a year in for me. And now it's coming up on, it'll be 23 years, I guess. And it still haunts me. Like it's mm-hmm. still there. There's no, like if I smell smoke anywhere, I immediately am in like a fight or flight mode, like, and I can't get rid of that. Or like, and there's a difference between the smell of a house burning and there's like a, a, like a wood burning stove or like a fire pit. And like my nose immediately can tell within seconds. Like it's, it's really, and I'm, I've been actively working on this for a very long time, but you know, it's just one of those things. And she was right. And I really kind of doubted her and I was like, well, I guess she's right. Um, So I'm good to have in in terms of safety. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You are great, but I can see that because our home chaotic or not, that's our safety zone in a sense. Right. And then your room and it being your stuff Mm -hmm. and growing up with a child where, you know, you don't feel necessarily heard or seen Mm -hmm. because that child really does take up all the energy of parents and just to prevent things like this, or try to prevent things like a house fire or those big disasters, or even the little disasters, it's constant, but I could see how deeply that would sit with you and resonate because that's what you had. That's the last thing you had was mm-hmm. that room. And that's your special place. All of your stuff, um, that would hit extra hard. Yeah. Especially when you're a teenager, right? Like right. where like everything, like your life is your possession. That's your life. life. It really mm-hmm. is your room and your stuff. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I never felt, I never had a sense of safety in my home, on my home ever. Yeah. And so I had like three or four deadbolts on my bedroom door. Did you really? Because my sister would constantly come in. She would, you know, steal things, ruin things, break things. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I was always made to look like the crazy one where my parents would be like, oh, she couldn't have possibly done that because she was so like, it was the rad charm, right? Like the rad charm is it's real. Like it is real. And the triangulation, like that is real. The manipulation, it is real. And my parents routinely would tell me that I'm being dramatic, even though I would have evidence of whatever she stole or broke. And so I just kept having to add deadbolts. And she was like a master locksmith, like she could get into anything. So, you know, even when it burned, I'm like, it's still like, it's not like anything was ever safe or private. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And that level of (laughs) denial or not wanting to believe that it could be that bad or that it really is happening. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. And yeah, I was listening to what you were saying and going back to how you said you were living in that state of 
flight or yeah, mm-hmm. flight mm-hmm. most of your life until your thirties and, uh, yeah. just listening to this absolutely. And a fire thrown in, forget about it. Yeah. 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 And you don't really know what that does to your, just kind of your cortisol, your kind of your limbic system, your like all of it, like it has such yeah. a big impact. And I really didn't start to unpack this until I was really about 36. And I was like, wow, it is a miracle that I have actually survived from, from now, from then to now, like it truly seemed like a miracle in so many ways. Wow. And so this led you to start a publishing company. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that we're talking because I can give you like a different version than I tell other people in terms of why I started this company. And it's not to say that one version is, is right. And one version is wrong. It's just more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And so when we were going through like the worst of our rad situation with our daughter, it was in 2012, 2013, 2014, even into 2015. Like it was a lot, like everything really started in the beginning of 2012. And it's not to say it wasn't already there, but like it started to like really, really get active and um, not great. And so we were so disconnected as a family, the four of us, where my wife would be in the living room watching TV. Our son was laying on the floor in the other, the room next to me with like noise canceling headphones on playing on the iPad. And I would be sitting doing a puzzle, listening to music. And she would be upstairs in her room screaming bloody murder. Like Mm. I mean, screaming bloody murder for anyone within a five mile radius to experience. And, you know, it was just easier for her to be up there getting her energy out, screaming, breaking things, you know, um, putting holes in the wall, banging on the windows. Like it was always, it was every day was something. And again, I don't have to tell anybody this, like you you get it. Yep. Yep. And so, um, one day I happened to be just sitting, building a puzzle And there's other things that were kind of already happening because I had a consulting company, which gave me a lot of freedom and flexibility where I just would go out and do, you know, um, keynote speeches, do some consulting work where I was able to still be, because my ex um, is a special ed teacher and teachers don't have flexibility as much as people want. They really don't. (laughs) They truly don't. And so I was the one that had the flexibility because we had some court related things that were in relation to the adoption that had to be fulfilled. And so it just made sense for me to have that flexibility. And so that was kind of already happening. And I had already written a couple of books around my topic of expertise because I had clients who were asking me. And that's the story that I tell the business, you know, the business audiences is that like, it was a demand. And then people were like, Hey, you know, how did you know how to write this book? How did you know how to publish this book? And that was a huge piece of it where I was like, okay, obviously I have the skill set that I've figured out how to do. Let me teach other people and help other people get their, their books published. So that was absolutely, and still is what happened. But the added layer related to rad is that I was sitting in our like sitting room, building a puzzle And it was such an intense day. Like I can remember all of like the minor details of where everyone was, what everyone was wearing, what was happening, the time of day, like it is so burned into my brain. And I just out of nowhere had like this epiphany, aha moment. Like, I don't know if it was like some kind of like like download from somewhere else. Like it just like kind of hit me that we are severely suffering in this situation. We are barely hanging on as a family by a thread, both myself and my ex-wife, both highly educated people, 
both active. She's a special ed teacher, had a whole other skill set that was was very helpful in our kind of fight to find the right resources. But yet nobody would take us seriously. Nobody would listen to us. And part of it was because our kids were on state insurance. And so we would go to the doctor and we would have that state insurance, even though the state insurance was because they were adopted, it had nothing to do with who we were. We were immediately judged as what they believed someone on state insurance looked like. And then we had the added layer of our, our sexual orientations. And so I was sitting there thinking, if we're having as many problems that we're having, and we are, we have access to resources, we have the economic means, we are highly educated and successful people, we need to do something about this. Like there, something has to change where we then help other people have a voice yeah. and, and be able to be seen. And so we created a workbook that is called uh, therapy therapy notes for families. Mm. Trying to trying to find it, but I can't. <laughs> but um, therapy notes for families, and it's just a very simple workbook. It's available on Amazon still that my ex and I put together, and it's just like your medication changes, your weight, height, notes from the doctor, notes from the therapist, notes from the psychiatrist. And just a way to help families keep organized when you have these severe mental health needs. And another important piece of Mm -hmm. that, I work in healthcare and we're always, the the saying is document, document, document. Mm -hmm. That is the same thing for parents like us. Document, document, document. So that sounds like a fantastic resource just for that to keep it straight and have all the information. Did you know that Rad Talk with Tracy is not just a podcast? We offer one-of-a-kind support services for parents, including supportive coaching, support groups, and retreats. Visit radtalkwithtracy.com. Check out our services and sign up for the one that's right for you. That's it. And we had like a note section in the back that was like, you know, the, the names, the phone numbers and addresses for like your primary people, because every time you go into a new doctor and Lord knows there's a lot of them, when you're trying mm-hmm. to get a diagnosis, you're filling out the same information over and over again. And I just happened to be an incredibly organized person. And I already had like a, a notebook system that I was operating by, but she and I were talking and we're like, wow, what if we like just package this together for someone else to benefit from? Great idea. Yes. And that was the first book that we're now almost at 150 books. That was the very first book that was published under this actual company. And I was like, okay, like we're, we're making progress. Like we're just one, just one way to help somebody who's really right. struggling. Um, and the documentation is what ended up saving us in the end, because we were investigated by the state uh, for false accusations, as many of us are. Yeah. And that was a really traumatizing experience unto its own, especially for my ex working in a school district, that if it had been found anything, like she would not have been able to teach. And so her like career is on the line. Mm-hmm. But because of our level of organization, we had a four inch thick binder that had everything documented, like every single, everything you could possibly imagine documented. So when that state worker came to the house, like, come on in, like, you're welcome. Like, look around, like, cause I've, we weren't in the wrong for anything. So we had nothing to hide. And I was like, here's the information. And I mean, like, it was a thick binder of information and she's like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, like you're <laughs> welcome to look through it because every single, everything is documented. And, and isn't that such is a wrong. tangible, a tangible or a, a visual of, you know, cause I'm hearing your story, like every other rad parent, including myself and just the amount of work that we have to do. We, we don't get to just be parents. We have to be the detectives and put, you know, document, put all this together, find the right programs. I mean, 
our day is literally exhausting because of just raising a child with special needs Mm -hmm. on top of that we have to do, and we're not alone in that. I don't think as parents of children with reactive attachment disorder, but you know, it's just exhausting to hear all the work that we have to put in just to prove to the next doctor or see the next doctor or the next, get the next diagnosis, just all of that work. And so listening about this binder, that's the visual of all of your effort and exhaustion put into that mm-hmm. book and then handing it over to the caseworker who's like, oh, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. They don't want to read that. No. But that's what we're we're forced to do, right? To mm-hmm. to get the right help and the right services. So yeah. Anyway, like, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. And I think it's the case for so many. And mm-hmm. like when she came in, she's like, I wish all of my cases had information like this. It makes yeah. it so much more cut and dry. And I'm like, it does, but we still had to wait three months for a, for a decision, right. even though she kind of, I don't, she didn't like directly say like, this isn't going to go anywhere, but like, it felt like it was being inferred that like, this uh. is really, you know, like, I just have to do my job. I have like, I have to follow instructions, et cetera. But it was really incredibly stressful. And then that's, you know, one of those things that just, you feel shame about that. Like, how could I like in, insert any human here? Like, how could I be investigated by the state for child abuse? Yeah. Like, how yeah. is that even possible? How, how am I in this world and this is happening? Yeah. I remember thinking, this is not who we are looking around, you know, like, how did we end up here? This mm-hmm. is not us. Yeah, it was, it definitely was a lot. And it was a dark, very dark point. Of so how long did life. you have your sisters? Was it just one child? Um, yeah, she had five total at the time when we adopted two of them, there was a paternal aunt, um, that was able to take the third one at the time. And and it just kind of made sense. And at one point we kind of had that decision to make of like, do we want to take all three of them? Because I think the court would have found in our favor to just keep all the siblings together, but she had such a loving aunt and paternal family that it didn't make any sense for us to do that to her. So, you know, we took the two of them. And so we still have, um, still have one of them, but yeah, we adopted in, we got custody in the end of 2009 and then we made it until the end of 2017 before we had a, a second chance adoption agency come in and help us find somewhere else for her to live where she could be safer. Yeah. Yeah. How was that process for you? Oh my God, that process was, <laughs> was kind of a nightmare, yeah. but you know, it was it finding number one, like I found a Facebook group and there was a woman who was like the admin of the Facebook group. And she like grilled me with a thousand questions before she would let me into the group, which good for her, because you want to make sure that's a safe space for the rad families, right? right. The rad parents yeah. or caregivers or, you know, whomever they are. And once I got in there, I was like, there's a, there's a thing called second chance adoptions. Like I had no idea that was even a thing. And so I called a couple, a couple organizations and they're like, she's too old. Yeah. And so I immediately was like defeated because we were coming up with so many different plans. We're like, okay, if you move to this state, but we stay in this state, we can get access to an institution that will be prioritized because we're now in that different state. So we're trying to figure out, we had so many different options, right? Uh, I shouldn't even say options because they weren't actually options. Yeah. So many different ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's, I'm like, she's too old. Now what do we do? And I had made a post in that group saying like, I don't know what to do. We are at our limit. I just, I don't know where to go. And someone had posted, do you know about this organization? It was a different one. I was like, I hadn't come across them yet. And it's a Christian based 
organization, which no, no judgment to being a Christian-based organization at all. However, we're a lesbian couple, and this is a Christian-based organization. And so I was having panic attack after panic attack for multiple days in a row, like leading up to the phone call with this person. And a friend of mine was like, listen, I know you're not going to want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's going to make you feel better. I was like, God, what is it going to be? Like, are you going to kick me while I'm down? Like, I'm already down. Where where is this going? Right. And she was like, the fact that you're a lesbian couple is only going to help you because they're going to want to save her from you. Uh And that statement was like one of the biggest daggers to the heart Mm -hmm. because it completely invalidates everything about who I am and who my now ex is. But at that moment, we're like, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Oh. So it's almost like we had to like completely invalidate our existence yeah. to get the help we needed. You know what? That happens so much in our lives, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. I have a friend who has a, a company and the title of it is she works with at risk kids mm-hmm. uh, and it's called whatever works. And that's what mm-hmm. our lives boil down to is sometimes you do things outside of your comfort zone based on the safety and survival of yourself and your family. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the irony of it is that my consulting work at the time was around LGBTQ inclusion within, (laughs) within fortune companies. And then here I am in my personal life being investigated by the state, Mm -hmm. having to contact agencies and just kind of like throw myself into the fire to get the help I need, but it worked, you know, it stung, but it works. At first we were concerned that they wouldn't want to work with us because of our identity. And my friend's like, Oh no, they're going to want to save her. And I was like, Mm -hmm sucks. And it was true. And we got the outcome that we were looking for. So I wouldn't change it for the world. It just kind of stinks how it all had to happen. Right. Yeah. But when it comes down to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, mentioning that age factor too, that's a hard and very common place that we get to is, uh, you know, you hear about these hopeful resources, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them, our kids are too old. There's that certain age where they're too old. And that's such a letdown. Like you say, it's such a sense of defeat. I've been there so many times myself and talking with other families as you, you know, it's this hope, despair, hope, despair cycle, Mm -hmm. because you get your hopes up about this opportunity and then, Oh, too old. Oh, Mm -hmm. you know, Or there's a waiting list or there's a waiting list or or it's too expensive. Yeah. Or Or they're too severe. (laughs) Look at us. eh? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so, it's so intense, but it's so So true. Like there's always an obstacle. And I think that's the, that's the hard part, right? Is that some of us are inherently built to persevere Mm. more than Mm -hmm. others. And it's not fair to those that don't have that innate skill. Right. And that's where I feel like there needs to be more, you know, more kind of focus, you know, and it's, it's hard though. Like, how do you, how do you actually help those people in those situations? Cause a lot of times they're not even aware, not even, yeah, they're not aware and they're not even available to be helped. Right. Right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a tough one for sure. But I hear you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did both of the children, your sisters, kids, your nieces, did they have, did both of them have reactive attachment disorder or just the mm-hmm. Yeah, just, um, just she did. And that's, I think just the timing of it. Right. So when we adopted or when we first got custody, she was almost three. Okay. So, and I, you know, I was an aunt, I was driving to where she was located two hour drive, picking her up on the weekends, feeding, bathing, clothing, like who knows how long she had gone without eating between the last time I saw her. So I was doing that for a long time. And, and my sister was like, yeah, just take like 
could care less because she just wanted like peace from having a baby. And so that was happening for a while. And so that damage, you know, like even with my attempting to intervene, like that damage is not something I had any control over. So no. she was almost three. And then our son who uh, is going to be 14 next month. Now wow. he was like nine months, I think. So he was significantly younger. So we were able to mitigate a lot of that early childhood trauma because we got him sooner. Right. Um, but he still has a lot of, he has a lot of challenges, a lot of mental health yeah. related challenges, but he is, he's doesn't have rad. And so for us, like that's our benchmark. So I have like friends who are like, wow, he's really difficult. I'm like, he is a breeze. Like right? so easy. Cause we have yeah. just a different comparison point. Exactly. And it is still hard and exhausting, but yeah, it's, it's not, <laughs> not next level. <laughs> how are you all doing today? You know, your sister, so she was living on her own and had the kids. You said she's has five kids now. Mm -hmm. So can you update about where your sister is at, where you guys are at? How's life? Yeah. Great questions. Uh, I have no idea about her. I only hear through the grapevine that, Mm -hmm. you know, in every, in when you lose, you know, three of your kids, when you have a fourth, the state automatically intervenes. She had the fifth, the state automatically intervened. Oh. I don't know where, where they are though. Okay. Um, so yeah, I have, I have no idea. I saw her four years ago, like I said, at my mom's funeral. So yeah. I, I have no idea. Um, and the paternal I, aunt or paternal aunt does, do you know? No. no, but I know that they're still together. Like yeah. again, through the grapevine, I kind of have some information, but I'm, I'm happy that, you know, they have each other. Cause I think that that still made the most sense. Yeah. But you know, we, um, she left in our daughter left in December of 2017 and my ex and I, uh, divorced or began that process in February of 18. So it was only took a couple of months before we realized that the damage from the last decade together just was more than we could overcome. I was just going to ask, is that what, what led you to that? It was, and it's because um, the best way I can describe it is that when you have a rad child, they are like the sun Mm. and every single decision independently, collectively is revolving around the sun. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's like the sun went out and like just all the plants just fell, fell because there was nothing holding us back together anymore. Cause our whole relationship was survival and fighting to get the help that we needed that we never actually had we really never had a, a relationship to begin with, like, we, cause it was yeah. so early in our relationship that we decided to do this. Cause I was, I knew that I was going to adopt before I, we even, we even started dating. And I was like, listen, just so you know, it's a package deal. So like, if we start dating and this goes somewhere, like I I've got kids that will be on the way at some point during this process. And she was like, I'm gay. I'm in like, she, mm-hmm. she immediately fell in love with them. And so Um, but yeah, we just never really had that dating period. We never, we just never really had a relationship as a couple. We were like firefighters, just putting out fires all day as co-parents. Well, and when you, you know, in those early days, when you say, I want to adopt, I I think our, uh, idea of what that adopted family and family is going to look like is very different than what you got. (laughs) We cannot foresee that. So it all just like everybody else, it all sounds great. You know, we'll give them enough love, a happy home. This is going to, we'll have a family. It's a beautiful thing. And then when you don't get that and you're thrown into something that you don't even know what's happening and it's pure chaos and exactly what you described, putting out the fires. I mean, 
Yeah. And then when you are focused on that survival, like most of us are, eventually you do burn out and there is just nothing left. Right. And there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that, but you just hit that point of no return. Yeah. And I absolutely had that. I had the full blown, like where, so she left in December of 17 and we were really quiet about it. We weren't telling anybody no, because it's, there's so much stigma to Mm. that, like how, and there's still stigma to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and again, there's like a small percentage of people who actually understand that. But so she left in December and my mom was actively dying of cancer already at that point. And so I went short, like she left and like maybe a week later, I went to visit my mom in hospice to just try to, and I hadn't talked to her in seven years as a result of our daughter's behaviors, because she just didn't understand it, even though, again, I thought she would have. And so so I went to just kind of like make peace. Um, And then she died in April. And then maybe like 10 days after she died, my body just shut down. Mm. Like, I mean, like it completely shut down. Uh, my cortisol levels as tested by multiple doctors were like not even on a chart to be read. They were so escalated. So I went from April to October of 2018, not sleeping. Mm. Like, I mean, I didn't sleep. Like I slept for like, I got like maybe an hour of sleep a night for six straight months. And my body, like you can't function without sleep. No, you you can't can't function. And, you know, I have a pretty successful company. And so, and even then, like we had a lot of people that we were working with that I was like, I am barely surviving right now that I need you to all step it up mm-hmm. and do more. Because if I don't take time, I like, this isn't going to end well. No. Um, and then finally, with the help of uh, some beautiful naturopaths toward the, toward the fall, I was able to get on the right, right kind of uh, diet to like help me kind of regulate yeah. my cortisol a little bit better. But it was a really scary time. And I still have like PTSD around it now sure. where I'm like, if I go a night without sleeping, my mind immediately goes back to that six, six month period of time of not being able to sleep. Yeah. And that was all as a result of just all of the stress, kind of chronic cumulative yeah. stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Really intense. But now I've got a different perspective because I'm like, you know, it's crazy. Like I have my son, like our, my ex and I have a really good working relationship. We have the exact 50, 50 down the middle. We have like zero, like zero issues in terms of like where he is and when. And so it's like, Oh, I'll pick him up tomorrow on Wednesday. Like I usually do. And, you know, and then it's like, we can have fun. We can do restricted. We can go for a walk outside. We can go for a bike ride. We don't have to worry about your sister being in the house screaming Mm -hmm. bloody murder. And so it's a really different perspective to go from being a, what felt like an actual prisoner for my entire thirties to now being like, oh shit, like, like I actually, I can have a life and it's (laughs) confronting when you don't really know what that life looks like. And so late in life, not that that's late, but later in life, right? Wow. 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 And your, your niece, is she doing well in her New. We don't know. Nope. We don't, we don't actually know. And it was um, okay. like they, the family has our contact information. Yeah. And so if at any point in time, and I made that very clear to them, like if at any point in time they need information, they want to reach out. I will never, there. I will absolutely be there. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's going to be 15. So, you know, who knows what, uh, what their lives might be looking like right now. Cause I yeah. know my sister's behaviors were really bad between 13 and 15. So I don't know, but you know, I'm always here to, to be a support when they, when they need it, or if she, when she turns 18, wants to reach out, you know, I'm, I'm here for it, but I, for their benefit, even though I have their contact information, I wanted to reach out to them more times than I can tell you, but I know if I do, it's going to interfere or interrupt what something good might be that they have going. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. I hear that a hundred percent. 
we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable mm-hmm. a lot and it's okay. You know, like you were saying, there's a lot of shame in this. There's a lot of taboo, a lot of judgment. Mm-hmm. We talked at the beginning about how, if you haven't lived this, it's incredibly hard to understand if at all possible. <laughs> and, you know, but we have to make decisions that in a typical family life are, or do seem taboo, but it's what works. You know, we have to do everything backwards. Parenting is backwards mm-hmm. and, uh, decisions and what we have to do is backwards. And it, it feels big and ugly, but you've had to make some really hard decisions, but the right ones for you. And when it comes down to it, that's what matters. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to share their stories, even if Mm. they're still actively going through it. Obviously I'm biased toward the format of books because that's what I do, but you know, just talking to a friend or having a therapist or listening to this podcast, like just knowing that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was the hardest part of just feeling isolated and feeling alone the entire time, even though there was a broader network and community. And now I feel like it's way in much better place in terms of like facilitating that community than it was 10 years ago. Right. And I think people like you through books or this people speaking on the podcast or me talking on the podcast, being that voice that is able to speak about it so freely and raw, it gives people the confidence or courage to use their voice as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge, um, a huge help. Yeah. I agree. yeah. Right there with you. Yeah. Well, uh, I feel like I could talk to you for about 10 hours <laughs> like <laughs> or, or some kind of girls weekend or something. Yeah, so totally. maybe we'll carry this on sometime, but I know our hour is up and, uh, thank you for sharing. I love that this was just kind of freestyle mm-hmm. and we covered a lot, but especially for sharing your story, I did want to read something. So your book is award-winning house on fire, finding resilience, hope, and purpose in the ashes. And it's available everywhere, Amazon, mm-hmm. everywhere you can buy books, yep, all the places. Yeah. And I, I just want to read this because in one of the descriptions, it says, Fire. While it appears destructive, it's also a force of renewal. Just as fire clears the way for new growth, so too can people transform their lives when they confront their worst fears and step into the sunlight of their purpose and truth. So I encourage everybody to get Jen's book, uh, House on Fire. And thank you. It's just been so great chatting with you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I, I said this to you when we were talking privately, but I so wish this podcast had existed 10 years ago. I would have uh-huh. been like, oh, this is these are my people. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you and the work that you're doing. Uh, thanks, Jen. The feeling's mutual. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.